No, they're they're bypassing Australia. Oh, they're going to go north of it. Oh man! Um, can you, can you say Howland Island? There are apparently a handful of people who have put down deposits on Terra Fugia flying cars, so obviously there are people who will buy it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like encountering other airplanes at high altitude. It tends to get rarer and rarer between, say, 9 and 15. Uh, Well, above 3,500, aren't birds required to have TKs? One-bladed airplanes, one-bladed propellers. This is just this, this is just the, the 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 meme that won't go away. Uh, we talked about this a few episodes ago, and now I came across uh, some research uh, uh, information about this guy who is trying to create what's basically a one-bladed rotorcraft. All right, a one-bladed helicopter. It's not for at this stage of the game it doesn't have people on it it's a it's a remotely piloted vehicle um it's inspired by you know how they have the the little i don't know are they maple the little seed things that that kind yeah. of swirl down yeah. from trees right. okay and and so they use this as a as a starting point and they said well wouldn't it be cool if we could create an aircraft that just that, that mimicked this kind of thing and so except they, it goes up as well as down yeah well, i was gonna say i was gonna say my, my experience with maple seeds is they really only go down that's right but the beauty is that they go down gracefully when they lose power right so or when they have no power they did maple seeds didn't have power to begin with but you should hear them stumbling around they're dizzy when they hit the ground yeah, yeah. So, it, it's too early in the morning for me to parse the phrase going down gracefully okay okay <laughs> <laughs> hey that's what off field landing of the week of the week is all about um, so, uh, so these researcher guys, I think they're MIT, but whoever they are, they're like MIT. I'm making little finger quotes here. Like MIT guys, um, have the university of Maryland. So it's, it's okay. It's, uh, it's another yeah. M school. I'm sorry. That's where I got MIT. the Maryland Institute of technology. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not looking at the video here cause I don't want to kill the bandwidth, but, uh, I watched this. It's a series of videos of different test models over a span of about three or four years where they've actually created a maple le- maple seed inspired rotorcraft, remotely piloted rotorcraft. And it starts out where they basically what they did was they took the they made one rotor blade, allow the maple seed you know leaf, if you will, blade. Um, and then they extended it in the in the op- other direction, and they put a little propeller on it so that it forces it to spin. And then they put a weight in the center that kind of I don't know stabilizes it and counterweights it and whatnot. And and this causes it to actually spin around the proper uh, center point, and so that the blade generates lift. And they put a little bit of electronics and and servos and stuff in it to control it. And and over about a half a dozen, eight or so different test vehicles, they improved it and improved it. They got it to the point where they actually can not only control it up and down, but they can control it laterally. And then the very last one, they actually put a camera on it. All right. So that uh, I think that what they're headed for here is some sort of uh, cool little surveillance uh, uh, aircraft. But uh, yeah, well, uh, because we all need more surveillance aircraft, yeah, I guess that's, that's true. right. That's yeah. right. But uh, the technology is cool. I do like the technology. You know, it's a seedy idea. Now, yeah. The only problem with it is, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too early for that. <laughs> the only problem with it is, it stands right now. The entire aircraft spins. There's no part of the aircraft that's not. Spinning. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, same size. Well, it's actually not so much a problem unless you plan to put people on it, right? Um, so, so, well, yeah. it's not a very good surveillance <laughs> It's going really well. Video something because, no, no, you know, I, oh, there it is. No, no, there it is. No, no, no. Okay, you see, you're just, you just don't like remotely piloted vehicles. That's, no, this is actually very elegant. The last video in the sequence shows um, they mounted a camera on the hub, and it's kind of looking down the propeller, the, the rotor blade, all right? So yes, admittedly, in the test one, the camera is spinning at the same rate as the whole aircraft. But all you got to do is put a little timing logic in this so that it only takes a video frame at a, once per revolution, and suddenly you've, you then can get a still image of some direction if it was it was a constant RPM, that would that would work. That's but then just, you have to you have to have an algorithm in there to change the. That's um, trivial. The, you can do that, all right. And and so not only can you take the image of in you know not only then can you phrase an image in one direction, 
but by changing the timing, you can actually pan the camera so it's looking in any direction from from where the where the aircraft is uh, is located at that point. I think it's cool technology. As as iffy as I am about remote, remotely piloted and auto, autonomous vehicles, I think this is cool technology and yet another example of one bladed propellers. So, anyways, the the coolest shots were the the night flying. I was thinking what uh, what you could do with a radio program on Halloween <laughs> with a yeah. few of these flying around New Jersey. You're evil. I evil. Know. I know. I know. Actually, that's interesting you should mention that. I was as a subject later on the list I want to talk about. This is somewhat Wait, related to that. But anyway. Where is Orson Welles when you really, really need it? I know. That's exactly. right. That's right. Exactly. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 185. It's another uh, aircraft uh, model episode here. What's a 185 called? Does 185 have a nickname? 185, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a 180 on steroids. Of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast, recording this episode on uh, Wednesday morning, May 5th, 2010. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, a couple of my good friends, Dave Higdon's out there talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. Good day, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Make up your mind. It's (laughs) 9 o'clock in the morning for Jeb and I. It's 8 o'clock in the morning for Dave. And uh, although he insists that he's usually up at this hour, I'm not so sure. But uh, you got the coffee. I'm on my second IV bag and needle of caffeine. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I know the feeling exactly. Also out there is Jeb Burnside. He's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So what's going on? Is it still hot down there? Well, it's, it's moderated a little bit. This morning woke up, um, uh, slight overcast, but the sun's trying to poke through. I think it'll burn off. Yeah. I think it's more, more fog than it is clouds, and it'll burn off here in a little while, and I don't know. It'll be 85, 90 or so. Um, the pool's good. Uh, the sun's good. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point here in uh it's a still look little, out it's a little little look chilly out, look out. little chilly in the morning but basically nice nottingham new hampshire uh so uh what's going on in the world of aviation these days uh oh all right so this is my rant i have to do my rant all right uh, i mentioned in the last episode that we got together a, a handful of uh, ucap listeners got together for brunch on uh, on saturday morning down at nashua um, one of the things I didn't mention, um, so Jeff Ward flew in in, uh, in, an air, in a warrior, I believe it was, um, and he mentioned that as he was leaving um, Hanscom Field, which is where he's based, down in Bedford, Mass., he noticed that there were a handful, two or three or so, of uh, Osprey, V20, V-22, is that what it is? Um, uh-huh. The uh, tilt rotor um, uh, uh, aircraft that uh, I was so excited about a couple of years ago at, at uh, Oshkosh. Uh, there, were, there were two or three of these on the ramp at Hanscom Field. And that's kind of cool, but you know, I didn't think all that much about it. There is a military base co-located there at Hanscom, and I just figured they were passing through or doing whatever they were doing, and and you know, that's cool. But it's down there, and they'd be gone before the day is out. As a matter of fact, he he was talking about how he missed getting an opportunity to get pictures of them on the way out, and he was looking forward to getting pictures on the way back. And I'm thinking if they're even still there. That was the last I thought about this. The next couple of days, I'm paying attention to all my various uh, social media friends down in the Boston area on Twitter and whatnot, and and a number of them are, and these are not aviation people. These are like regular social media, you know, computer technology video guys, right? And they're all crowing about the fact that they're all going to get V-22 rides, Osprey rides. And I'm going, what? You know, so so sit up straight in the chair here going, what? And as the day goes on, it turns out that the reason that the, the Ospreys are down there is that it's, it's Marine Week or something, all right, at, uh, at Hanscom Field, all right? Let's see, the, one of the posters called it uh, Marine Week Boston. He, I, should, I gave you a link to some pictures. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that was media day, and all of the Boston social media people somehow got hooked in, all right, and trooped on out to Bedford and got their V-22 rides, and I am just so jealous I could spit. Uh, this is just <laughs> not right. All right. This is just capital N, not, capital R, right. Not right. And I don't know what to do about it. So well, I, I have, I have a one, one question before I render any kind of a judgment here. Yeah. Um, in what uh, um, communities or fields or industries are these uh, uh, social media individuals practicing their trade? Um, 
the handful that I'm, I was really paying attention to are, no joking, professional social media guys. All right. Um, there's a guy named Steve Garfield who is a, a little bit of a computer consultant, but is very active in video on the net, and he's got a book about getting your pic- getting your face on the internet, and um, so uh, he's very very active in social media. Another guy, the one who posted the pictures, this CC Chapman guy, is very active in social media. They're basically this is their connection. I'm convinced um, is that somehow the Marines and the social media community made a connection, and and you know how ugly that can be. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, ah, it just uh, makes me. Yeah. It makes well, me. Yeah. Let's let's talk about this offline, maybe. Um, um, see what we can uh, engineer. Yeah. Well, clearly, and this is the other. My other comment is that if you know, when Tupper finds out, I lost out on this opportunity. Uh, He's just well, going to speak to me. Has, uh, has Tupper had a, an Osprey ride? Uh, I don't think. Do no, I don't believe he's had an Osprey ride. No. Well, he, he should be uh, torqued about it generally then. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's not hard to understand why you'd want to uh, try to cop a ride in the, the most uh, the most uh, uh, useful Ex- invention to ever come out of Ron Popeil's brain. <laughs> you don't like this airplane, huh? Uh, oh, I do like it. I, yeah. I do like. Uh, it's, I, I, I liked it the first time I saw a, a, a demo of it. Uh, thirty, almost thirty. I was going to say, I was going to say forty years ago. Oh come on! It doesn't go back that far. The, the oh, technology yeah, basically does, and they've been trying to perfect this sucker for I know some that. time. And finally, it's it's uh, you know obviously deployed. It's it's in Afghanistan, I believe, if not. Um, yeah. Uh, All the, kidding aside, it had, it, it had its first combat crash a, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Really? I missed that. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, within the past month, I believe. Um, so that was kind of a notable thing. Uh-huh. They, they didn't they, give us they, a lot of detail on what caused it, but it was definitely like, over there in the war zone. And uh, one of them went down and some people died. That's kind of sad. That's yeah. more than kind of sad. It, That's it, very it's, sad. It's the one Ron Popeil machine that you can't set it and forget it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, anyways, well, I guess there's nowhere to go with this other than to just for me to say it's not right. It's, it's just, not right. Just not no. right. No. Something wrong there. David, you call our attention to, let's see now, a kind of funky looking airplane that you saw pictures. What's the yeah. story on this airplane? Well, this was, uh, there's a uh, company called BAE Systems. Uh, it's kind of a remnant of the old British aerospace. Mm hmm. Uh, that still is in the business of producing uh, uh, airliner-sized jets. Uh, they call them Avro these days. Uh, they were BAE, what were they, 146? Yeah, that was a cool airplane. Yeah. I liked that airplane yeah, a lot. Right. Yeah. Very wide, oval-shaped cabin, four engines, very short takeoff and landing carriers. Four engines? Two engines, I think. Four engines. Well, it is now. But the original, yeah. well, I, there may be a two-engine variant. Uh, the BAE one forty-six started life with four engines, and I, I was looking at this. This is an artist rendering. This is not an actual photo, and I think what they did was was draw it uh, in such a fashion that this is from uh, slightly uh, uh, aft of the uh, of a of a ninety-degree perspective. Yeah. I think they drew it such that you can't. See the number two engine. You can only see the number one engine. Yeah, no, yeah, I think it, it's still a four engine in this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I stand corrected. I'm looking at a picture I found here. Yeah, the, the, I when I was in California, there was a period where I was doing business down in L.A. and I was commuting, you know, a couple times a week or weekly temp down there. And this is the equipment they were using uh, mm-hmm. between San Jose and L.A. And I really grew to like this airplane. It just was, you know, I liked it for some but reason. The, the, what makes this one stand out is it's. Uh, Branded the Explorer One and the Explorer Four, and they're basically safari airplanes. Yeah, they're kind of like campers. They're uh, mobile home, motorhomes, you know, in an airplane. B A motorhomes. Yeah, uh, with wings, and an aft cargo door area has been fitted with kind of a clamshell door and a slide-out deck. Works along the lines of what they call tip-outs in the motorhome world, where you've right. got a room that right. actually 
cranks out. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, it's like a push. Uh, I call it a push out, but a tip out. Okay, yeah. Tip, they call them tip outs. I don't know why, but because I guess because they chip over if you were trying to drive with them out well, there. Well, maybe, but, huh? Yeah. But uh, this was pretty, pretty amazing looking, and the artist concept for looking from inside the deck where there are strangely no people. Hmm. out on the uh, African landscape with wildlife and trees at sunset. And I'm going, oh, yeah, uh, sure, uh, I can see that. Uh, now, is this just a funky concept thing that they don't expect to ever make or even sell any, but, or, or is there really a market for this kind of thing? I guess there's a handful of rich folks in the world that might. I was going to say, when you've, got, when you've got people, individuals, who are capable of and, and, and actually buying Airbus A380s for their personal transportation and having them fitted out like uh, the luxury condo of all luxury condos, uh, I expect that they're serious about selling a few of these. Yeah, you know it's yeah. true. They're, they're yeah, have to instead sell of a taking the air, like, instead of wow. taking the Airbus, you take the camper. Yeah, I was going to say there are apparently a handful of people who have put down deposits on Terrafugia flying cars. So obviously there are people who will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we have an opinion. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But, uh, I'm sorry, they're listeners too. It's a really valiant <laughs> attempt, folk guys. But uh, I'm still not buying it. But, yeah, but uh, nor am I really buying this thing. I just don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not buying this either for for two things. One. BAE, um, uh, love them to death. They're they're you know a good company. I've worked with them in the past. Um, they've got you know a series of uh, airframes out there um, that have been produced or uh, uh, can be produced again, uh, for which there's just very little market. Um, the the Jetstream uh, uh, thirty one forty one models, um, which are which were regional turboprops developed I don't know thirty years ago or so. Yeah. Uh, have have <clears throat> found a good niche in the regional cargo market, uh, but they're not uh, they're rarely let's put it that way uh, uh, serving the, the passenger market these days. Mm -hmm. um, there's you know an abundance of these airframes out there. BAE uh, had you know brought back a bunch of them on lease and has been reworking them and and uh, trying to integrate them into the regional uh, uh, cargo market as I mentioned. Um, same thing for the 146. The, the trick with the 146, though, is um, it, it's four engines, and the fuel burn uh, compared to similar aircraft is is pretty atrocious. It's not the fastest out there either. Uh, it, it does have some, I won't say STOL uh, characteristics, but it, it is a good uh, uh, um, um, airplane to get in and out of tight, tight runway, so there is a market there for it, but... Uh, um, it, it just cannot compete on the economics with uh, uh, more modern aircraft. So BAE is, is strolling around looking for all kinds of different applications it can, it can dream up, and, and this is just one more example of that. This, the, only, the second point is real quick. I don't think anyone uh, is going to plop down a, uh, a four-engine jet in the middle of, uh, you know, some African desert, uh, and and go camping. Um, there's going to have to be a paid runway nearby. This airplane is not really designed for for uh, 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 unprepared runways, and uh, the operational uh, aspects of that. You know, it's one thing <clears throat> to to have this kind of a slide out uh, patio thing on your on your uh, uh, your camping uh, uh, equipment, and that's a nice idea. And, and uh, uh, maybe we'll see some more of that. Um, but it's quite another to try to market this as uh, you know an off airport go anywhere uh, kind of aircraft. Uh, I don't I don't I don't know that that's going to work all that well. Yeah. Well, the 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 hook for me for putting this on the the list for this morning was that uh, uh, BAE Systems chose the European Business Aviation Conference and ex exhibition right. to unveil this. Mm -hmm. That's that's the NBAA show for Europe. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Okay, that's going on right now, right? It's going on right now, and I think it wraps up uh, tomorrow. Is this a? Is this an? Has this show been around for a while, or is it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is ten or eleven years now. Okay. And, and it, the story came to me uh, from a little service uh, that's produced by Flight International called Flight Daily News, uh, their Flight Global uh, uh, online website and I've worked for Flight International in the past, know a lot of folks there. 
they're the uh, aviation week and space technology for the rest of the world. And, you know, they're a serious aviation publication, right. industry trade book. So if they're showing this concept and flogging it at eBase, there's no doubt in my mind that somebody will pony up. That, you know, it may only be two or three or five downstream because the, the whole idea is create the concept, sell the airframe, and then the buyer will take the aircraft to an outfitter that can execute the right. interior and, and airframe modifications. Uh, but the BAE Systems is selling these, uh, these Avro jets uh, with some success as business aircraft, uh, mm-hmm. head of state aircraft. Uh, I'm with Jeb on the low expectation that somebody's going to drop this down onto the African belt. <laughs> <laughs> but but you could do watched, it once. You could do watched, it once. Well, I haven't and, watched and, this. And you got your go balcony in. there all prepared. Yeah. I haven't watched this airplane go in and out of some very short, not all mm-hmm. that smooth airstrips over the years. Uh, when mm-hmm. I did airline reporting, uh, you know, if there, there's parts of uh, Africa where if you can drive a, a Land Rover across it, you could safely. Put this thing in and out. Uh, you just want to watch out for the elephants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the wildlife. Yeah. Um, uh, the the one forty six. The basic airframe has been very successful. And you, David, you mentioned heads of state operations. Uh, I believe uh, the Queen's flight, the UK's version of Air Force One, uh, uses these aircraft, or at least really? they formerly did. I don't yeah. know what they use anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, for all, for all I know, they've they've disbanded the Queen's flight, but um, um, uh, it's it's a great aircraft. Uh, it's it's had you know very faithful service. I'm not aware of any uh, uh, chronic issues with it. I'm not aware of any, uh, uh, for that matter, any fatal accidents uh, involving it. I'm sure there has been you know one or two, um, but for its size and uh, um, performance uh the four engine uh, uh configuration just makes it uneconomical for a lot of uh, a lot of operators um business operators head to head of state operations uh, uh perhaps those not as as sensitive shall we say to the economics uh, might find this very attractive well so so obviously we need to think twice maybe we don't want to add one of these to the uh, ucap fleet and well I think if we're still restricted to you know three airplanes, um, this one's going to have to fall off the table. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it, what's it, the all, it, well, all kidding aside? What is the ballpark price for one of these things? Uh, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. <laughs> okay. I checked. Uh, I can't ask. Yeah. Okay. I, I've got the release here somewhere that, um, um, from BAE, but. Uh, so what are we talking uh, about? One million? Five million? Oh, more than one. Yeah, less than five. Um, let's see. Um, I'm, I'm reading the press release yeah. now. I've, well, there isn't a press release. There's a, a photo and, and a media briefing uh, yesterday, apparently. All right. Have um, we heard any other news coming out of eBase? Have you guys been paying attention? I, I, uh, there, there's been a trickle. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the things that caught, caught my attention was that... Uh, there's a, a two or three aviation journalists over there who are twittering from there. That's how I sort of realized it was going on, and uh, that's kind of the uh, brave new world that uh, even you know. I mean, just well, there's no no news story that uh, there's there's not any. You know, I've got a, a release here from Becker Avionics, uh, uh, um, key to, to eBay's, and and uh, something from Iridium and, and things like that. Um, there, uh, I don't know that there's anything revolutionary. Uh, but there's a lot of e- evolutionary things going on. Um, new cockpits, uh, um, uh, glass panels, glass panel retrofits, um, things like that. Uh, and actually, I do have a release here from from BAE, um, but it doesn't say anything about price. Well, well, I'm sorry, it does. Um, no, it, that's that's their uh, um, okay. Uh, that's a financial statement. All right. Well, yeah. Um, so okay, but, we'll we'll have to put this one down the bottom of the list. We're not going to add one of these to. The well, list. I don't know about the bottom of the list. I, you know, it, it, it'd be somewhere in there between um, um, seven forty-seven and a seven twenty-seven. How's that? I see. Okay. All right. 
Hey, David, you have an update for us. Uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was last episode or episode before, we talked about the folks, the guys, men and women who are flying um, uh, one or more flight design CT LSAs uh, around the world. And, uh, and you had yeah, an update a couple for of us. Swiss, a couple of Swiss airline captains commemorating 100 years of aviation in, uh, in Switzerland. And holy cripes! Yeah, I know. I'll talk about that in a second. Go oh, ahead, dude, have <laughs> you had a saliva test lately? Holy, we man. we, yeah. uh, we mentioned him last in, in EP one eighty four, but we kind of talked about. It. I talked about it on the impression that it was two pilots making the trip in a single airplane, mm-hmm. which you know, admittedly, had me thinking. Boy, I hope they get along. Uh, <laughs> But, in fact, uh, our old friend Dan Johnson released some uh, uh, additional information earlier this week. And the two uh, gentlemen are flying two CTLSs uh, outfitted to carry 120 gallons of fuel each, Mm -hmm. which should make people sit back and kind of ponder their their, uh, thoughts that because it's an LSA, it can't be very strong uh, or carry much. Uh, 120 gallons kind of puts it over its normal operating weight. <laughs> you think? And on the uh, position page, as I'm looking at it right now, and I think Jeb- this is what made Jeb gasp. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's right. As we as we are recording this on Wednesday morning, the position page, which shows a map of the world and two airplanes superimposed, um, they are currently just about dead center in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean right now between Africa and Brazil, Africa and South America. About uh, where Air France 447 went down. As a matter of fact, yeah. Say so, they're closing in on that. That's true. Yeah. Oh. So uh, by the time anyone listens to this, they will presumably have made it to uh, dry land. But right now it looks pretty hairy to be – it shows these little two airplane icons yeah, they, in the they middle of the make, ocean. They should make landfall uh, – in uh, about Salvador in Brazil, uh, the, I would expect uh, th- this this evening uh, uh, sometime. Yeah, I was, gonna th- I was today's Tuesday. I mean, today's Wednesday. I was thinking Saturday. To make <clears throat> landfall? Yeah, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, they can't go faster than 120 knots. Yeah, I don't know about that. And, and with well, actually, you know, starting operating. out with 120 gallons of gas, you know. I, you know yeah. Yep. How long does it take? All kidding aside, how long would it take to fly? How how far is that across? So this is this is one of the shortest distances across the Atlantic Ocean. It's about twenty five hundred miles. That over water leg. So you're basically going to fly all the way across the United States on one tank of gas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why uh, they didn't take the northern route? You know the the um, uh, Greenland Iceland UK route. I don't know, but. Uh, um, I, that's kind of what I thought when I first heard about I this. I don't know. Can you say Brazilian sponsors, maybe? I'm not sure. I, I, I can say that, yes, and I certainly readily understand that. Here's the trick, though. If, if you're doing um, uh, endurance flying um, and you start off with a heavy airplane, as the airplane gets lighter, um, to maintain the best efficiency, um, and this is what I would certainly want to do if I'm, you know, uh, uh, 1,250 miles from land, um, I, you, you're going to slow the airplane down. You know, the, the best efficient, the best liftover drag speed um, is, is weight dependent. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, as the airplane gets lighter, the speed, the best liftover drag speed gets lower. So at the end of the flight, they're going to be flying Basically. Uh, much more slowly than they were uh, um, at the beginning of the flight to maintain that best liftover drag speed. If I were doing it, that's what I would be doing. So um, the further they go, the more gas they burn, the slower they go. And uh, that's kind of what engendered my comment about Saturday instead of... Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's right. Basically, they'll never get there, right? They just yeah. keep well, slowing yeah. down and slowing down. I, I have worked out this route uh, time and speed-wise for a, a, a project I was engaged in last year. And uh, at the airspeeds at these two CTs are capable of averaging across air. Uh, looking at about an 18-hour, 18 to 19-hour crossing, yeah. uh, depending on the winds, of course, uh, in still air, you're looking at about an 18-hour crossing. Mm-hmm. Uh, How long was the Lindbergh crossing? Do you remember? 33 was, hours. It was 33 hours from New York to Paris. And, and he was flying basically the, the same, you know, 
lift over drag uh, kind of profile, as I recall. Yeah. I, all I can say is I drove my car for a 15-hour day come, when I was coming back from Florida, and 15 hours driving in a car where you have a chance to stop and stretch your legs every now and then was an ordeal. I just can't even imagine flying 18 hours in an airplane by and, yourself. And, and I, I, I don't want to get to the end of this little uh, bit of discussion without giving these guys names. Yannick Bouvier and Francisco Aguila. Uh, Yannick's 37, Francisco's 41. Uh, you know, high-time pilots, been flying for years. Uh, baby, 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 this isn't the longest overwater leg they're looking at either. Yeah, it's true. They're they're up across, they are not taking the short easy way across the Pacific by going up through Alaska and down through Russia. They're going United States to Hawaii and on. Yeah. yeah. Are, are, they, are, are they going to try to hit uh, Australia? Uh, I believe so. I was just oh, trying man. to get the... Uh, man, they're taking a long way. Okay. The, uh, that's that's the, more here than I got. The yeah. route map. And, uh, oh, yeah. No, they're they're bypassing Australia. Oh, they're going to go north of it. Oh, man. Still. Still. Okay. Um, while can we're on you, the can you say Howland Island? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, be a swell prize to any listener who can uh, yeah, tell I, us what that reference is. Uh, my skepticism and incredulity aside, hats off to them. I mean, yeah. uh, um, um, not necessarily something I would want to try. Uh, you know, without you know uh, a seven seven seven, but um, uh, <laughs> more power to them. Uh, and and best of, best of luck. Now, what's the longest leg you've ever flown, Jeb? You fly some pretty long legs with all those uh, tip tanks and everything. With all those tip tanks, yeah. Um, longest leg I've ever flown probably was Manassas to Houston. Uh-huh. How, uh huh. How long was that? That was um, seven something like that. On um, it's interesting. I I uh, uh, had a business trip years ago um, and uh, took the airplane and, and uh, the business was in Houston. So I just you know uh, flitted on out there and uh, made it nonstop out there, no problem. I uh, was on the ground a couple of days, turned around and went back nonstop, and didn't think a whole lot about it. Along about that particular point in time, uh, the uh, engine monitor in my airplane was was giving me garbled data uh, and um, contacted the company to um, try to straighten this out and ended up talking with a tech and he asked me to send the data to him, just you know text files. So I sent the data to him and and a couple of days later we got on the phone. He says, look, uh, I got your data. I got got the answer for you, and, and all this kind of thing. He says, "I got to ask you a question, though, first off." And I said, "Yeah, sure." What? So, he says, "What the hell are you flying? That you're doing seven plus hour legs?" <laughs> because yeah. he's seeing seven hours worth of data. You know, the engine's running for that that amount of time, and I just busted out laughing. I said, it's just a de- just a debonair with tip tanks. Yeah, you know? really. It's just like a. Says, I, I hadn't seen one like that in a long time, dude. You know, so, but. Um, I, I had a, I guess my other, you know, kind of um, um, uh, poster child, uh, long distance flight. I did um, Scottsdale, Arizona to Manassas. Uh, did it in nine hours, 45 minutes flat, uh, but I did stop once for gas. Uh, that is a long fucking day. Yeah. Yeah. David, you, uh, now, I, you've told us stories in the past, David, about long days, but not particularly long legs. I'm trying to remember. Well, I was just looking back through some records while Jeb was talking about this, and, and my longest leg was about 800, 820 nautical miles from Wichita to out into Ohio, uh, east of Cincinnati, there on, on the Ohio River. Yeah, and what did that time out to? Uh, just right at five hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, my longest day... Uh, in total mileage in the airplane was a uh, a three leg, uh, eighteen hundred mile day coming from down in Mexico back up to Wichita. Uh, that was a long long day. Uh, two stops for fuel. Uh, on the on the the first stop for fuel, we uh, cleared customs back in the United States, and uh, and then. Uh, on to Wichita from there. And we started in Via Hermosa, Mexico that morning, mm-hmm. which is on the south, 
east curve of the Bay of Campeche, kind That's of right. at the bottom of the Yucatan. Capitan Higdon. <laughs> Capitan Higdon, yeah, That's came right. around the bottom uh, up into the uh, along the coast uh, into Brownsville and then on from there. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we tried to keep it into small, I'm sorry, it was one, two, three fuel stops for the day because we were heavy and we were only going with 45 gallons. Uh, instead of our full 60-gallon capability, standard gross weight, and that kept the legs down to about three hours. But we did four of those puppies before the four of them. Well, the last one, we were light enough to put on full fuel, but that was only a two-hour and change from Dallas back mm-hmm. up to Wichita. Yeah. My so longest. That's, that's a long day, but it's amazing how much ground you can cover even in yeah. a slow little airplane. Oh, yeah. Well, my longest day, I've talked about this before, but briefly was uh, – was one of my return trips from Oshkosh to uh, San Francisco, or actually San Jose. And uh, that was the trip where we launched from Oshkosh as the sun was rising over mm-hmm. the field. And, uh, and we made it back. We, and we actually landed as we were on final to San Jose. We saw the sun set behind the hills there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that included a number of fuel stops and getting chased to the ground from, by thunderstorms once. And it was quite a day. I'm thinking back on it. I, I, there are many, many more events in that day than, than, than I sort of connect with one day's worth of flying. But it really was just one long day worth of flying. That was a cool day. Anyways. Well, you know, long legs are great and all that. Uh, you know, Jeb and I are both capable and and guilty of uh putting the destination uh, as a higher priority than the process of getting there and you know that's when you're flying for work you're, you're on a business trip of some kind or another uh yeah. the, the ones that i consider more standout memories and a lot more fun are the ones where we know when where we're going and we know by when we should get there and it's really not critical that we get there that day or necessarily the next. Oh yeah. And we kind of bounce around and dodge weather and and drop into places that essentially were the new decision we made twenty minutes earlier. Right. Yeah, right. right. Well that's and what a, who was it? It was I think it was Hal Shevers uh on the podcast last when we were in Florida who said that the 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 best how do I forget how he put it exactly, but he said the most fun he has in airplanes is the unscheduled things is the right. that's the, right. the stops that weren't planned um, you know and I, that's certainly been my experience as well uh, oh that's how we discovered you know Andalusia, Alabama, and the little pilot's lounge with the hot dog steamer yeah uh Gallipolis, Ohio, which is the hometown to Bob Evans a uh, little airport there uh Jiminy Rough River. State Park in Kentucky. Uh, yeah. Yep. Jeb, nice and I, Jeb and I stopped at, uh, at uh, what was it, Clark County. Uh, the, the world's mangiest airport dog. The world's mangiest airport dog. Exactly. And I'll probably stop in there later in the week, actually. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, what else? Uh, and, and when my friend and I, back in, way back when, got chased down to the ground by thunderstorms, um, it was it was very nearly the world's mangiest airport cat was there, uh, and uh, that was kind of cool. So yeah, the, it's the unplanned stops. It's uh, you, like Dave said, you should allow enough time so that you don't have to get there at any particular time. So right. and stop stop and smell the av gas along the way. That's I right. remember I don't know which trip it was, uh, Dave, but I remember um, um, headed out your way once, um, and I you know. Got up in the morning and threw all my stuff in the car and drove out to the airport and and um, loaded the loaded the airplane and you know kind of looking around at the ramp, snapping a few pictures of stuff on the ramp and and um, you know pulled the airplane out of the hangar, closed the hangar door, got in the airplane, and said, "All right, now where am I going today?" Oh yeah, no, exactly. Going yeah. to which? Oh yeah. Okay. I have, let's see. Do I need to file? No, I don't need to file anything. All right, let's let's get this thing started and, and kind of amble off in that direction, see what happens and. And um, it's much more relaxed and less stressful than, uh, than yeah. trying to be on a schedule. And back in the pre yeah, yeah. back in the pre nine eleven days, a friend of mine and I used to like to uh, you know we'd decide where we were going after while we were climbing out. You mm-hmm. know, it's like you know, okay, now will we turn left or right? You know, I, it wasn't quite that spur of the moment, but but yeah, you know, we you know these days you got to be a little bit more careful about planning your route. But uh, well. It, uh, I used to hang out with a, a a group of guys. We'd saddle up 
uh, the ultralights that we were flying mm-hmm. on a Saturday morning with, you know, uh, we all had our little ditty bags or backpacks or something like that with thermoses, a coffee, maybe some bottles of soda, some sandwiches, some snacks, a live we'd, credit card. We'd we'd stand there looking at a at, you know at a, at a at a state map, a highway map, and kind of look at the the cities along the way in the area. Say anything within seventy five miles or so, and the decision on which way to go was. Based on wind, we'd go yeah. upwind first. Yeah, we'd fly upwind for two, maybe three hours. Make a stop along the way, find some place to drop into a country store or a small grass strip or something. Then do about a uh, hundred twenty degree turn in one direction or another, and fly off on that direction and stop and have lunch. And then on the uh, last leg, we were more or less going downwind back to where we started. Right. And that would make that leg, if the winds hadn't changed dramatically, that would make that leg the short one of the day. Mm-hmm. And we could get in six or seven hours of flying, visit a couple of different places, and never get more than, you know, 100 miles from our start. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, anyways, uh, uh, we wish good luck to the uh, Swiss guys uh, who are flying the CTs, and uh, um, hopefully they'll make it across. We'll check back later today and make sure that they've made it back to dry land, but... Uh, um, there, that's pretty cool. Uh, on a slightly related subject, just sort of a follow-up, um, a bunch of episodes ago, we reported about a change to regulation here in the States, uh, actually the States and, and Canada, the U.S. and Canada, that um, suddenly made it easier for LSAs to fly into Canada. And I uh, just wanted to point out, um, we heard from our, our good buddy, uh, Luca Berta, um, who p- called our attention to the fact that although... Strictly speaking, our report was accurate. Um, it, it is only the aircraft that it's easier to bring into Canada now. They have to be flown by a private pilot. A sport pilot still has issues with flying into Canada, apparently. So uh, um, if you're a sport pilot flying the LSA, use caution because uh, um, you still have, you may not be able to do it at all. I'm not sure exactly what the, the regulations are. But to the extent that LSAs can go into Canada more easily now, it's only when they're being flown by a private pilot. Here, here's, here's a question. Um, yeah. Over the last, I don't know, couple of decades, um, the FAA, um, to some consternation here in the States, has pretty much been over backwards to um, comply with international standards. Yeah. Uh, specifically those uh, promulgated by ICAO. Um, when do we start getting some payback on that? Yeah. So you think that some of these, and I tend to agree, I don't follow it as closely as you do, but I tend to agree that sometimes we've, we've gotten, you know, joined up with ICAO rules to our detriment. And well, I'm, I'm, you know, a couple of examples real quickly. Um, uh, the overall conversion to to the METAR TAF uh, exactly. uh, weather yeah. uh, format is was an international thing, was an IKO thing. Uh, that occurred um, in the mid '90s. Um, more recently, uh, we had this uh, big whoop de do about um, uh, getting uh, English proficiency on our certificates. That again was a an IKO thing, um, and. Every now and then, we kind of need some reciprocity, uh, and, and Canada um, clearly, uh, um, you know, has their own rules and their own sensitivities and things like this. But uh, um, if you're an FAA certificate holder, um, you know, what's the problem? Are there any other countries around the world that accept uh, a U.S. sport pilot certificate? Or there's no certificate, obviously, but you know that. Rating, if you will, um, well, a sport flying. pilot is a certificate. So let's 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 correct well, that first off. It is. A oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. It is it's not. It's not a rating like a. Yeah, like a I'm sorry. I was. It's, there's no medical certificate. That's there's what no medical certificate do. associated with that. Uh, um, and that's of course, I think, what one of the things that's that's uh, um, scratching heads in Canada. Um, but uh, I would guess that in other countries, and, and, you know, I would defer to Luca on, on this. If he doesn't know offhand, he, he certainly knows where to, to research this. Uh, in, for example, in Europe, I, I, you know, there's those microlights, there's, you know, two or three different kinds of aircraft certification standards that uh, uh, we don't have 
specifically here in the States, but uh, uh, the light sport category is designed to try to encompass. Um, I would guess that uh, uh, the certificate levels required to operate those aircraft in Europe, uh, various European countries anyway, um, are, are let's, let's just say, less than the private pilot standard. So I, I got to think that there's some, some reciprocity in, in Europe between certainly adjacent countries. Uh, I don't know how all that works. Maybe Luca does, maybe he doesn't. But uh, uh, I got to think that um, um, at some level or another, there is that reciprocity. Why Canada can't get its act together on this level is, is um, uh, a good question. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sure he'll tell us. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we'll find out about 48 yeah, hours very, very, after this episode goes up. Yeah, he's very, very good at following yeah. up on these things. So uh, if he's uh, if he's not distracted by other things right now, he'll probably he'll chime in, uh, and that will be great. We'll like. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. Um, let's see now. Next story here. Uh, so, you know, I used to, I still do have a very short list of things that kind of really make me nervous, quote unquote, about <laughs> flying. Um, you know, the idea of uh, in-flight structural failure, which I know is incredibly long shot, but it kind of makes, that's, that's one of the things that makes me nervous. Um, a mid-air, all right, makes me nervous, all right? I, I'm gra- I think I'm adding to the list bird strike. It never really bothered me. I never really thought that bird strike was enough of a concern that, but man, we're hearing more and more about bird strikes lately, obviously with, uh, with the U.S. Airways thing a, a, few, a year or so ago, and uh, and now it seems like everybody's reporting their bird strikes. I think they all want to become, you know, like hero pilots for announcing that they survived a bird strike or something. I don't know. Um, so uh, here's a story from the Something Tribune. Let's see, the Bismarck Tribune, uh, North Dakota, apparently. Um, and it's the story. It's it's a very uh, detailed and interesting story about a uh, pilot or a pair of pilots uh, who uh, suffered quite a dramatic bird strike, just about as just about as serious a bird strike situation as I would imagine you could have in a small plane and survive. Um, this airplane got pretty beat up. There's a picture here of the leading edge, but that's apparently the least of it. Apparently the the, uh, the main windshield broke and uh, the birds came into the cockpit and there were some injuries and uh, it was quite a thing. Um, the, you know, the thing that attracted my me to this story in the first place is that the headline is Pilots in peril, quick thinking and training prevents bird strike tragedy. But reading the story, I kind of don't find the, I mean, to be sure, these guys, you know, kind of kept their heads about them and flew the airplane and all those good things. But I don't quite see the the thing that was particularly related to a bird strike, the quick thinking, you know. Um, maybe that is what they're referring to, you know, just fly the airplane, fly the airplane. Um but uh, this this story has um, a picture of um, the leading in, leading edge damage. Uh, I recognize the end number on the airplane. There there are some other pictures around floating around on the internet uh, out there in the ether uh, of of um, significant damage. Apparently they um, um, flew into a flock, as I recall. Yeah, uh, and, and there's there's some yeah yeah there are three three ducks they're they're calling they, they estimate that three birds actually mm-hmm. struck the aircraft and or vice uh, versa yeah right uh, hey it's our sky not theirs that's right um, and uh, yeah I won't try and read any there's a long, fairly long article uh, goes into some detail about the circumstances and and what happened and what uh, it's kind of interesting I I, I don't know I, I mean I guess my question for you guys. There's nothing you can do to avoid a bird strike. It's going to happen sure so fast. Well, unless you see a flock of birds, I suppose. But um, well, what can you do? Um, dodge them first of all. I mean, um, uh, we saw uh, that we saw that video last time about the fighter pilot, uh, the fighter jet, um, almost intersecting with an airliner. Right. right? Um, almost intersecting. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You you come across these things in the air so quickly. How do you ever Avoid it. I mean, really. Well, um, well. For, I, first off, is you keep your head at looking outside. You keep looking outside the airplane, um, and that's you know easy to say. It's it's much more difficult to actually do. We have so many distractions nowadays um, in inside the airplane. Um, whether it's um, you know uh, all the bells and whistles in the panel, or uh, um, you know. I've seen people flying around reading newspapers and stuff like that. I, I uh, 
Um, I won't, I won't uh, go into any detail on that particular aspect, but uh, um, yeah, you have to see them to avoid them, and uh, that means looking outside the, the, the airplane. Um, there's any number of um, FAA-approved training materials out there on, on how to scan for traffic, how to scan for, for wildlife, and, and things like that. And, and uh, it's, it's the main problem that we, we encounter, I think, is, is, okay, we're looking out the windshield, but our eyes are really focusing about 20 feet in front of the airplane. Uh, that doesn't help. We need to, you know, partitioners, check, sectionalize, if you will, the, the sky around the airplane and, and, and make specific efforts to, to look in those quadrants and, and scan up and down and, and, you know, actually turn your head and, and, and uh, exert yourself a little bit rather than just sit there like a lump. Um, and then when you see something, you, you have to react. Uh, um, the, the only time I've hit a bird, um, kind of a glancing blow, um, I was on final with the gear out in an, in an older arrow and uh, uh, saw the bird and, and uh, uh, decided not to react mm-hmm. because I, I was in the landing mode and, and relatively close to the ground. I didn't want to uh, um, disturb... Uh, I didn't want to risk, uh, you know, getting into an unusual attitude or, or something like that. I wasn't sure, a, if the bird was going to hit me. B, what what the outcome of that would be. In other words, if I had the airplane in a in a in a bank or a, a dive or something like that, uh, and the and the bird hit some some part of the airplane, um, it could break something, and and I would not be able to recover from that particular attitude. So, I mean, this was a, just kind of a split second decision on my part. Uh, the bird what, hit. what part of the aircraft did it hit? It hit the um, just um, a glancing blow to the lower portion of the leading edge uh, at the wing root of the left wing. It, it, anybody okay. familiar with um, this was a, a Piper Arrow Two uh, Hershey Bar Wing uh, Arrow, and uh, anybody familiar with that knows that there's a fresh air inlet uh, grill on the um, in the wing root uh, that's kind of angled. Uh, uh, maybe a 45 degree angle or so to the leading edge in the, in the fuselage. And uh, that's where it hit in the lower portion of that, in that fresh air inlet grill, left a couple of little feathers, and uh, that was the extent of the, um, uh, the um, uh, encounter. I'm sure the bird had a much worse day than I did. Oh, that's yeah. what I was going to ask you. Do you have any evidence that the bird survived the encounter? Or? I have no evidence. I, I would sincerely doubt the bird survived the encounter. First of all, he had, by definition, he had to have flown through the propeller to get there, and, uh-huh. which in and of itself is not impossible. And in a lot of instances of birds flying through propeller arcs uh, intact. Um, um, but I, I can't imagine. This was a relatively small bird. I, I would guess it was a... Uh, Maybe a crow or or something smaller than that. I I don't know. It was it was a, a dark colored bird. Um, it was not a starling size. It was something somewhere between a, a up to and including a crow and uh, down to a starling. Uh, but you know, hitting hitting uh, uh, a two thousand pound airplane at you know, flying at um, you know eighty ninety knots. Um, closure rates, you know, da 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 da. I suspect he did not have a good day before um, before it was all over. Yeah, really. David, you ever hit a bird? On uh, at about six or seven feet off uh, runway four at uh, uh, Meridian, Mississippi, on my way to uh, Florida years ago. Uh, really gusty day. Little little flock of ground birds running along the runway. Mm-hmm. And as I approached to flare, uh, three or four of them ran ahead of me, took off, and started to scatter. One of them got hit by a gust. And right well, something that, else I got too, hit yeah. by a gust. <laughs> and the poor little bird flipped backward and came right through the propeller arc without touching anything and bounced off the, the base of the windshield, uh, uh-huh. just about dead center in the windshield, left to right. This yeah. is your legendary, really thick windshield, right? So yeah, uh, this was a big, thick quarter of an inch uh, bowed outward. Uh, I'm not sure that the original windshield would have uh, would have uh, taken that hit without damage. Although I'm pretty sure the little bird wouldn't come through it. It couldn't have been a pound. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we know he got the worst of it because uh, Tower was watching me 
because of how gusty it was, we'd had a little debate uh, on which I prevailed to land on the runway of my choice more into the wind than downwind when they were trying to route me to a downwind arrival that didn't have a problem of a tree line just up mm. the end of the runway. Uh, the guy that landed right before me drug a wingtip and scratched up the wingtip because of how gusty and, and turbulent it was on that runway. Uh-huh. But they saw the bird strike from the tower. They sent somebody out to pick up the bird, uh, and we filed you know, a report on it and all that jazz. Uh, but just a few miles southeast of there, uh, we regularly had encounters where we either maneuvered to avoid much larger birds uh, migrating down into the marshlands of the Gulf Coast uh, or... You know, we, we saw them, and they saw us, and they took their own uh, see-and-avoid action. Because when you get down to that part of the world where there's all this uh, uh, wetland area, uh, you're going to get into more birds. And I've found that once I get above about 3,500 feet, uh, the, the prospects seem to go down exponentially. Yeah, uh, It's not that there aren't birds out there. <laughs> at high altitude, but it's like encountering other airplanes at high altitude. It right. tends to get rarer and rarer between, say, 9 and 15. Uh, yeah. Well, above 3,500, aren't birds required to have TCAS? <laughs> well, I, I hear that the new rules are going to require them to have uh, uh, ADSB out. That's uh-huh. a deposit uh-huh. system, but... <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right. Um, so, so the... Uh, the so-called Brazilian Air France crash uh, uh, is back in the news. Um, as we reported a while back, um, they had resumed the search for the debris, but more particularly the uh, the recorders. Um, but now, um, well, see, this is interesting. The headline of the story, which is from, uh, uh, I don't know, some sort of TV news station here. It's uh, whptv.com. Um, it's uh, it's reporting. The headline says Atlantic hunt for crashed Air France jet extended, but then if you read the four paragraph story, it actually seems to be saying that the uh, the the resumed large search has been cut back to just apparently one one vessel is going to continue to search. Well, uh, <coughs> what's going I, on I, here, Jeb? Have you been any news? I, I, I should have I should have put it in the show now. I mean, I should have put it in the um, um, in the lineups for for this issue. I came across a story. It's been within the last forty eight hours or so where um, uh, it was rather more lengthy. I think it was out of a European, uh, uh, maybe it's Reuters or something like that. But uh, uh-huh. um, the uh, the punchline of it was that um, the current uh, rejuvenated effort to to search for the black boxes has so far been fruitless. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been searching um, um, a pre-designated area that uh, was was arrived at or agreed upon uh, um, through a lot of research and, and uh, looking at uh, uh, what data they do have on on this accident um, using um, uh, deep submersibles, uh, remotely operated vehicles, uh, things of this sort. Um, they haven't found anything yet, yeah. and uh, they are expanding that search area. Um, I didn't. I don't recall, and I, I don't remember seeing in that story uh, any any reference to um, only one vessel uh, uh, taking this project on, or uh, or something like that. It's it's. I I, I, I gotta know. I mean, you gotta think of how frustrating this is for for uh, the searchers. I know um, uh, Air France and Airbus both are contributing to this in substantial levels. Um, um, trying to find uh, um, the, these black boxes, um, it's it's a little perplexing. It's a little curious um, ab- uh, about this. Uh, you know why they can't seem to find um, this wreckage on the ocean floor with all the technology and we have and all the the information we have. It's um, kind of makes you wonder. You know, going back to to what we do know about this, or at least preliminary reports that that I've come across. Um, the thinking is that the aircraft hit the water uh, more or less intact uh, in a relatively flat attitude, but with some rotation, um, maybe a five-degree nose-up attitude. 
is it's not clear um you know but doesn't that then suggest that the debris would be spread out over a very small area well it does and here's where i'm kind of sort of going with this though is if you know the aircraft did hit relatively intact and we know the the vertical stabilizer snapped off as as well i'll say we speculate based on the evidence that the vertical stabilizer snapped off um, in that in, in that impact with the water, the airplane was again uh, uh, basically intact when it hit the water. Um, what I'm what I'm trying to get around to here is is um, you know the water the air is a fluid just as is water, and you know the airplane hits the water relatively intact. We don't know what control surfaces were were intact. We don't know which ones broke off and, and began to sink on their own. But um, the fuselage, you know. Let's 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 just say, for the sake of argument, that the fuselage and the wings were still attached when the airplane began to sink. Uh huh. Um, it's basically an aircraft again. Do you think it could have "quote it's unquote" got, flown for a long exactly, way? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, That's it, an interesting it's, idea. It's it's uh, you know, and and the randomness of of such a, a an event is uh, uh, kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. Um, what might have happened? What could have happened? Where that thing would have <clears throat> would have quote flown unquote? It's really a terrain at the bottom. Yeah, go ahead, David. The terrain at the bottom of the ocean. There uh, a few weeks ago, I heard an interview, uh, a radio interview with one of the uh, people involved in the search, uh, an American involved in the search, and they were talking about the uh, the. Not only the depth of the water there, but the terrain. It's basically a mountain range down at the bottom of the ocean there. Yeah, it's, yeah. So, you know, if you look at a a search area of, say, I think the article said 770 square miles uh, of horizontal search area, Mm -hmm. it's many more miles than that in square area of terrain because of the steep angle of the the mountains. Right, right. You know, stuff can be tucked down in nooks and crannies, and uh, of course, the, the the boxes have been in the water so long now that uh, I would imagine there's no expectation that the pingers yeah. or the strobes would still be functional. I mean, this was June 2009 when the accident occurred. So, yeah. uh, it, but the 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 driving motive behind this, you know, Jeb hints at it, and talks about it, is is to find out what really happened. Uh, using data that can now only be supplied by what's on the on the recorders. Right. Well, you know, okay, we're running out of our allotted time here, but let me ask you one last question, Jeb. So, um, Jeb, it's been your opinion, I think, if I'm correct, if I'm relating this correctly, that 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 the organizations involved here are sufficiently motivated that they would basically never give up until they found these boxes. Uh, do you think that 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 will is is weakening? Um. It, it, it's it's hard to say. Uh, I guess you know there, there is there is very strong incentive, uh, both from a legal standpoint and from a an operational accident prevention standpoint, to get those black boxes and read out that data and establish um, the uh, the facts of of, of uh, what happened here. Uh, Air France has that. Airbus has that. I would think that um, many, many other organizations and individuals have that same incentive. Um, at some point, yeah, you're, you're going to get to the point of, you know, we, we've done this. We can't find this stuff. Yeah. And I would, and it, we're, it's, we're well beyond, as, as Dave points out, we're well beyond the point where <clears throat> uh, the, the, uh, the pingers, uh, the sonar pingers on these on these devices uh, would have given up the ghost. Yeah. So we're basically talking about either uh, a magnetometer, a sonar, or a visual search uh, of that area. Sonar being, you know, we're looking for parts, we're looking for um, uh, anomalies, and, and of course that's a very rough, uh, it's very rough sub uh, uh, submarine ter- submariner territory, whatever the word is. Um, so picking out. The airplane wreckage uh, in that environment has got to be one of the more most difficult tasks I can think of. Just to give us some context here, and then we really do have to move on here. Um, the the precedent for this kind of search was the what was it Indian Ocean crash? Mm-hmm. What was it? Um, yeah. How long after the crash did they finally find the recorders? I, I don't recall. It was it was upwards of a year. 
Uh, and, and how and long has it been now on this one? It's been nine months. Yeah. So we're okay. Well, um, coming up. Oh, on no, 11, 11 months. months. 11, 11 months. months. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. was yeah. June 2009 when the accident yeah. occurred. Yeah. If they find these boxes, it will be absolutely intriguing to see what the data tells us. Oh, yeah. It, it really will be. And, and I think, to my way of thinking, clearly the, the, the lessons learned uh, from this and the data on those recorders is going to be uh, both significant and fascinating. <clears throat> but I think the, the backstory of how these searches have been conducted and uh, the equipment and the technologies and even the personalities involved is perhaps, over the long term, the bigger story. Yep, yep. Shout-outs. What do you got? Anybody got anything? No? Okay. I, time, I to stick, no. time to stick a fork in this one. Jeb Burnside is uh, an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the net? JeBurnside.com uh, is the personal website. Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com uh, is uh, the website for aviation safety. And uh, I'll pop up on uh, uh, AvWeb occasionally and, and maybe uh, you know coming soon to a police blotter near you. Yeah, cool. Did my picture make it onto the cover? Yes, so far. It did. Yeah. Oh, okay, so yeah. far. Right. I'm so excited. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, when did you get last get a picture on the cover of Aviation Safety Magazine? Uh, last year, I think. Okay. And where can people find you on the Internet? I'm sure you've had way more covers than I have. Well, where can... not all that many in aviation safety. Uh, okay. But otherwise, you've had a handful. Well, let's see. Uh, avbuyer.com, look for the World Aircraft Sales Magazine link. Uh, uh, I'm in the uh, latest edition of EAA Sport Aviation, which you can find online. Uh, that would be EAA.org. Uh, JaveHigdon.biz is the personal photography website. Uh, or just you know, roll the dice, Google my name, and throw out the golf writer and the theoretical physicist, because I do neither of those very well. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and the many other listeners who have created these show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? There's a reason why there are so many old guys with wings, because time spent flying is not subtracted from their lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.